0: Good
1: morning. Hope everyone's feeling good this morning. Bright and mutable Sunday morning. We're glad to have everyone here this morning. Start our uh, worship service this morning. Read a portion of Psalm number six. O Lord, rebu- rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your will. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed in times of trouble. And I have got on the wrong page, I'm sorry. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, to deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and show who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let us pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us again to be worshiping you this morning in our beautiful sanctuary, in this beautiful place we call Earth. We ask you to bless us, forgive us of our sins, help us through the coming night and the new day tomorrow. Amen. In our announcements this morning, we have choir practice this week on Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. The adult growth group on Thursday evening at 6.30. That will be at the Parsonage. And be sure to read John 11, chapter 11. That will be the topic of discussion. And our baby bottles are due back today. I've got mine, but unfortunately it's in the car. I'll get it in a little bit. (laughs) Let's see. Thursday, the 14th, oh yes, uh, Young and Harden will be meeting at the uh, Fellowship Center at uh, 11 a.m. So, will have that in mind, too. Also, we extend sympathy to the family of Jean Penninger, who passed away on Thursday. Notation is in the bulletin on the order of services that will be held for her this afternoon and also here in the church for tomorrow. And the family will be wearing bright colors, which she loved. So anyone that wishes to do the same that will be a fitting tribute to Miss Jean. Very... Um, Faithful worker in the church and very loved by all who knew her. Do we have other announcements this morning? The women's meeting tomorrow night. We're postponing
2: that um, because we'll be doing bereavement meal after the funeral tomorrow. Um, So we're moving it to the 13th, which is not the next Monday at seven at the social. So if you don't normally attend and want to come, we'll be up there. We'll have Valentine's thing. Beverly has the.
1: She's doing it all this time. She's the hostess and the program next Monday. So we'll have, we'll post on it on next Monday. The 13th? Yes. Okay. Steve? We have a congregational meeting next Sunday after church. Congregational meeting meeting next Sunday after church. And, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yes, I'm sorry.
0: Um, so many of you know that we've been doing on Sunday nights our, uh, our youth, our student growth groups, and we have taken the month of February off for us to, to kind of plan and, and readjust some things for for that going forward. Starting the first Sunday in March, uh, we're, we'll start our new way of doing things, but we will meet for five Sundays, five Sunday nights in a row, uh, with our, our students, preschool through high school, uh, if you are one or know of one, bring them on Sunday nights. Uh, we will do meal every, every Sunday night. We will do a, a craft or some sort of game or activity as well as a Bible, Bible study with, with them. Uh, and based on age groups and, and who's in attendance, those are split according to ages as much as we are able. So a couple of things for, for you to know. One, we are, with this new change, are changing the, the name and kind of, uh, restructuring how we understand what these groups are. Uh, so rather than student growth groups, we're going to be calling them Rising. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, this generation that we're working to minister to is the rising generation. Uh, they are the ones that will be leading us and leading our, our church in only a matter of time, uh, and so we want to force them and, and build them up and encourage them in the faith. Uh, also with that, as Christians, we are resurrected to the new life, and so we, we believe that this resurrection and this process of conversion is just that, it's a process. In um, a lot of cases, it's immediate conversion stories where the dead come back to life in Christ immediately. But for a lot of us, especially those of us that grow up in the church, that's not an immediate thing, but it's, a, it's a, an ongoing thing. And so rather than being raised from the dead, we are rising from the dead. And so we want to pour into these students and pour into them and teach them what uh, a life of faith and a life of community looks like in the church. And so we are pouring into to this rising generation through this. Uh, So for you, as a church, a couple ways for you to be encouraged or be thinking about how you can help us out. First, uh, we need need volunteers. Uh, If you would like to to volunteer to provide a meal, to provide uh, a lesson one of those five weeks, to lead a game, whatever that looks like. whatever You just want to be involved. Uh, You can talk to me, talk to Paige, talk to Jessica or Michael. Uh, We would love to have have you involved in any way that, that you would like to help. Second option is... Starting next Sunday and going going forward on the second Sunday of every month, we are going to, going to be having second Sunday sleep, uh after church. And so, as you leave on the second Sunday, uh, as, as you leave worship, we are going to have individually wrapped uh, home baked desserts and goodies of some kind prepared by these kids uh, that they're going to, to write. And so, next Sunday we'll have it. Uh, there'll be a, a selection of, of some sort of baked goods for you to take home and for a a small price for each thing, and so bring some cash next week and take home dessert with you after church, and, and look for it. plan on that every second Sunday. We'll, we'll continue to have that. These funds will help us uh, in our supplies and in our meals and different things, different expenses that we have for these, these events, so uh, come ready and, and take home some desserts next week. If you have any questions at all, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Jessica would uh, as well, and, and we will hopefully get this underway in March.
1: Thank you, Reverend. Looks like another good uh, way to be here on second Sunday. <laughs> 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 Do we have any other announcements this morning <coughs> Two weeks army of here on Friday for the next two weeks and we welcome back uh, Mr. Stephen Nolan this morning Glad to have him back with us this morning and his fiance, I believe. Glad to have you. There are no other announcements. Let's open our service this morning. Hymn number 258 at the cross. Please stand. In God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, the only God and Son our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered on the conscious fire, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into heaven. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence you shall come to the judge, the quick and the death, and believe in all the rest the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.
2: Verses 1 through 4. Alright, so here, let's, let's listen to God's word. What should we say then? Should we keep on sinning so that God's grace can increase? Not at all. As far as sin is concerned, we are dead. So, how can we keep on sinning? All of us were baptized into Christ Jesus... Don't you know that we were baptized into his death? By being baptized, we were buried with Christ into his death. Christ has been raised from the dead by the Father's glory. And like Christ, we also can live a new life. So, that is a lot of big words. (laughs) We're going to talk about what it says i'm going to ask you a question show you a picture okay what is this well this particular what is this a shoe um what is is this shoe old or new how do you know it's old it's dirty okay what else do you see about this picture you see it yep, yeah, there's a dog in this picture but we're mostly looking at the shoe what, what a, what, did, what can you see about this shoe? Um, it's torn, it's up. torn up. It's torn up. Dirty. Yeah, it's dirty. It's torn up. The, end of, the bottom of the shoe, the sole of the shoe, yeah. is yeah. coming apart. It's coming apart. Have you ever had a favorite pair of shoes that you wore all the time, everywhere? Are they super comfortable? And do they get worn out and really old? What happens when your shoe gets so torn up that you can't wear it anymore? Does it make you does it make you kind of sad to throw away your favorite pair of shoes? Would what if you could put on your new shoes on top of your old shoes? Since your old shoes are so comfortable, why don't you just put on your new shoes on top of your old shoes? No. Why? Because the
0: inside of your old and then you would kind of break up
2: the new shoe. Yeah, that doesn't sound very comfortable, does it? I don't think that would work very well. And you'll break your old shoe apart. You might break your new shoe. Yeah, we don't want that to happen. So, no matter how comfortable your old shoes are, there's only one way to enjoy walking in a brand new pair of shoes. You've got to take off the old ones and put on the new ones, right? There's no way new shoes can be worn over the old ones. And our new life in Christ is like that. The Bible tells us that we have to put off our old self and put on the new self. The old self is our old way of living, where we just think about ourselves and sin is in charge of us. Hmm. Our new self is made to live as a free son or daughter of God. After God makes us all new, called born again, isn't it silly to cling to our old sinful ways of living? Like when we have new shoes, we just only want to wear our old shoes. Those old ways of living Haven't done anything for us Except make our lives miserable and sad So we need to put off (laughs) Lying Meanness Anger Jealousy And all the other sins That belong to our old way of life And we need to put on Jesus Which means being kind Patient and forgiving Just like him And the best part is God gives us his Holy Spirit to help us All we have to do So let's do that right now. We'll pray. Dear God, thank you for being with us today. Thank you that we have this morning to worship you, to learn about you. Thank you that we have the Bible, which is your word spoken to us, so we can hear from you and learn from you today. Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, that, we, that you would help us put on our new self through Christ and to die to our old self, our selfless sin. We love you, Lord, and we need your help every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If anyone has... Children under four who need uh, nursery care, I will be down there.
1: And let us continue our worship service this morning, hymn number 132, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart and And quick stand.
0: Have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We are continuing through our study of Romans this morning, and this morning we will be looking, as we begin chapter 6, we will be looking at the first four verses specifically, but over the next three weeks we will be uh, handling verses 1 through 14 together. And so, kind of like we did back in chapter 5, where we read the full section every week, but only focused on a, a small section there, we'll be doing that again this morning. I'm going to read to you uh, from chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 every week for the next three weeks, Now, but we'll, we'll work our way through it slowly, so this morning I'll, I'll read to you these 14 verses, and we will study specifically or more intensively in the first four. So look with me, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is what Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we, we need your help. Help us to understand your word this morning. Open our eyes to to see this truth. And give us hearts of faith that believe it. Encourage us, convict us, refresh us, renew us, revive us, Father, by your word, by your gospel. Speak to me this morning and give me strength to preach your word. Faithfully, boldly, and to your glory and not mine. Christ's name we pray amen well if you haven't been with us over the last several months now we have been working our way through this letter to the church in Rome from Paul and and if I if I could maybe give you a brief recap of kind of chapter by chapter what we've seen you know, in chapter one, it kind of split into two sections. The first half of, the, of chapter one being a, an introduction, a, a prayer that Paul gives to, the, to this church in Rome, and, and then he begins in verse eighteen of that first chapter this discussion of sin and that God's wrath is, has come for sin. And that into chapter two we, we see that, that sin is not only impacted the, the Gentile world, the, the non God fearing world, but has also come into Israel to the Jewish people, and to the people that have God's law. And chapter 3, the, the first half of that chapter, really drove home this same point that there is no one righteous, not even one, and that all humanity is unrighteous, is deserving of God's wrath, and is deserving to die because of sin. And then at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, Paul makes a turn, and he begins unpacking and, and unveiling this path of salvation? How is it that the unrighteous can be saved from the wrath of God? He says very clearly that it is by faith and by faith alone that we are justified, that we are made righteous in Christ. In chapter 4, he gives us this example of Abraham, that Abraham was not justified before God because he did great things for God or because he obeyed God, but that Abraham was justified because he believed in God. He was that he believed God's promise and God counted that belief as righteousness. And then in chapter 5, which we spent the entire month of January on the 5th chapter, chapter 5 then focused and zeroed in on how can we know that we have been saved by faith. That God wants us to have assurance of salvation. That we're not left to guess. That we're not left in the dark. And so, chapter 5 then ends, as we, we saw last week, ends with this depiction of the greatness of God's grace, that it reaches the the deepest part of who we are, that it extends farther than any sin that we could ever bring to it, that this grace of God is like a well that we will never reach the bottom of. And now as we come to the sixth sixth chapter, there is yet again another central theme The theme of chapter 6 in Romans, we we will spend the next several weeks on, is that as Christians, you and I are no longer bound to sin. That sin's tyranny no longer has rule over our lives, and we have been freed from it. That's the the theme of chapter 6. That's the point that Paul is going to get across to you over, over this chapter. And this morning, if we look at this section, this first section of the chapter... Really, the, these first 14 verses, the primary point is found in verse 11. What is it that Paul wants you to understand from chapter 6, verses 1 through 14? It's verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's what he wants you to see. This section builds, and it builds up to this point. He, he's arguing in the first 10 vo- verses trying to get you to see verse 11 is true. And then verses 12, 13, and 14 give us application. What does it mean for my life? How am I to live if verse 11 is true? So we're going to work our way through it. This, This week, we'll look at what it means to be dead to sin and how that happens. Next week, we're going to look at our future, and we're going to look at what it means to be alive to God. And then the following week, as we finish this first section, we'll see verses 12, 13, and 14 what, what Paul commands in light of this. What we as Christians are to do and how we are to live because of it. And so what I want to do this morning is really just walk you through this these first four verses and show you how Paul is building this argument and building up to verse 11. And so if you go back with me to, to chapter 5, the very end of chapter 5 for a moment, I, I want to point you at a, a kind of lead you to how how Paul moves his argument so you can understand. So you can understand where where Paul is is coming from and where he's going. And we remember that chapter 5 is about this assurance of salvation, that that God wants you to be certain that you have been saved by faith, that there is no doubt, that you're not left to wonder or to question. And at the end of of the chapter, he says, look at verses 20 and 21. This is what Paul writes at the end of chapter 5. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, from here, Paul could have ended chapter 5 and he could have jumped straight into chapter 8, verse 1. And he could have said, "Because, because God's grace is so sufficient, because it's so wonderful... But Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free. There is no judgment, there is no wrath, there is no punishment coming. You have been justified in Christ, and you are free from condemnation forever. But he doesn't. He stops here in chapter 6 and 7 to address a, a very common misunderstanding of grace that the opponents of Paul, primarily his, his Jewish brothers and sisters, who would raise at this point in his presentation of the gospel. You see, in simple terms, many of Paul's opponents believe that if Paul went around portraying grace in this way, that there's nothing you can do to be saved, but God saves you and then holds none of your actions against you, that if you go around preaching this message of grace, then Paul, what you're doing is you're encouraging people to sin. Because their actions don't matter. And God's going to forgive them no matter what they do. And so that can't be the message of God. God gave us a law. He told us we have things to do. So so you can't go around, Paul, preaching grace like this. It just doesn't work. And really, we, we can understand this argument. We, we see where Paul says at the end of chapter 5 where, where, where sin increased grace abounded all the more in Greek there's an even closer parallel where it says where sin increased, grace super increased and this is true it's a wonderful piece of the gospel but what Paul stops to, to address here is, is the question if the increase of my sin makes grace super increase, then why not increase my sin so that grace continues to increase even more? And it may sound silly. I I don't think any of us are going to say, yeah, I agree with that. let's, Let's do that. Let's keep sinning so that grace keeps growing. This sounds like a silly argument. But this was, in fact, one of the biggest pushbacks from the Jewish community on the gospel of Jesus. You can't just forgive people without asking them to do anything. And say, God wants us to obey his law. And if he just gives us more grace every time we sin, then people are just going to keep sinning. Don't you get it, Paul? Free grace undercuts any command of morality. And honestly, in a lot of ways, they're right. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say... God will forgive me because that's his job. That someone someone has been caught in sin or been confronted about their sin, and they respond not with repentance, not with sorrow, not with shame or confession, but they respond with, it's okay because God would forgive me. And then continue living in their sin, because God's going to forgive me. You see, Paul's words may here be 2,000 years old at this point, but... They might as well have been written yesterday. W.H. Auden wrote, wrote a poem called For the Time Being. And in this poem, he, he, he writes these words. He says, every crook will argue. I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. And I think it's such an, an impressive understanding of, of how wrong we get at them. And yet, at the same time, we we just laugh off our sin because it's not all that serious. Because God's just going to forgive whatever it is we do. Regardless of why we do it, or how often we do it, or whether we're repentant or not, sorry or not, ashamed or not, God's just going to forgive because that's what God does best. It's His job. And I think this mindset has taken hold of us for... For at least two reasons I think that we Think this way because we both Misunderstand grace And we misunderstand sin I don't think that we understand grace properly And I don't think that we're the first generation To miss this Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was alive during World War II He wrote in a book Of the cost of discipleship He writes on what he calls cheap grace This is what he says He says, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins, proclaimed as a general truth. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins no contrition is required still less any real desire to be delivered from sins he continues this is what we mean by cheap grace the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs Chief grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance baptism without church discipline communion without confession Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Does this sound familiar to anybody else? God's going to forgive me, God's going to give me grace, and I don't need Jesus for it. <coughs> I don't think we understand grace properly. I think we've missed it. And I think it's led to a lot of Christians and a lot of non-Christians to think that God's just going to forgive everyone at the end. And he doesn't require me to do anything. And I don't think we understand grace properly, and I also don't think we understand sin properly. You see, to us, sin is just a wrong action. It's a disobedience. I messed up. I made a mistake. I did something God didn't want me to do, and that's sin. And, and yes, that is sinful. But to Paul, sin is more than just something we do. I mean, notice how he talks about sin in chapter 6. He, it's not an action that he's condemning. He's not saying, stop doing this. But, but to Paul, the way that he talks about it, sin is a, a power. Sin is an authority that rules over us. It is a master to which we are enslaved. This is, this is where I want you to sit with me for, for a little bit this morning and, and over the next few weeks. I, I want you to, th- this idea of sin that being more than just something that we do that's wrong, I, I, I want you to start thinking of sin as a power of sin as, as an authority, of sin as a master over you. Because this master reigns over humanity apart from Christ. And I, and I think that if you can begin to see sin this way, that it's less about what you do, but it's more about something that controls us and, and dominates us, then if we can understand and think of sin this way, then chapters 6 and 7 of Romans will make a lot more sense to us. Let me show you what I mean here. Paul, Paul says in verse, in verse 2, he says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? If sin is just our actions, if sin is just something that we do that's wrong, then, then we have Paul is saying in the past tense that we have died to them, that our past actions are gone, and that they are no longer a part of our lives. We've died to them. The things that we used to do are no longer a part of our lives. dead. But is this true? Is Paul saying that Christians are perfect, that Christians are without sin because they've died for their past sins, they've stopped doing all that stuff that they used to do? No, of course That can't be true. We as Christians know better than anyone else that we still sin. We still struggle with some of the sins that we struggled with before we became a Christian. They're still around. I wouldn't say that we've died to those actions. And yet still Paul says we've died to sin. Because you see, if sin is a power that rules over us. And when he says that we've died to sin, he means that this power, this authority, this master over our lives has lost its grip on us. The chains have been broken. Slave master defeated the power destroyed the authority brought down on its head because we've died to it I think this is the right way that we we need to understand Paul here but the question then follows how did we die to sin how did we die to this master and to answer this we have to understand what it means to be united with Christ and this is what Paul, this is his emphasis in verses 2, 3, and the, the first part of 4. Look with me, read these verses again. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been, been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Three let me give you three headings to to break this down a little bit. First, uh, accomplished in history. Accomplished in history. You see, the death of Christ is really what we're talking about here. here. The death of Christ is a historical event. There is a date, a time, a place, a person tied to this thing. It happened. If you were with us last week, we talked about Adam being our, our representative, that he In in the Garden of Eden, he represented us, and when he sinned, we sinned. And we compared it to the the Olympics or or watching our our favorite sports team. And so that if someone were, were to ask you who won the game, you would respond, we did, even though you had nothing to do with the game. And so in the same way, we can ask, who sinned in the Garden of Eden? We did. And here, again, we say, who died on the cross? We did. And I realize we don't, we don't think about the cross this way. The cross is where Christ dies for us. We didn't die there. But this is where union with Christ, as union with Adam, comes into play. I mean, Paul picks this up in several of his writings, specifically Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The union of Christ is, is what he is referring to here, is what he's referring to there. And, and this is what it means. When Christ died on the cross at Calvary, at that very specific moment in time, everyone who trusted in God's promises before Christ came. So we're going all the way back to the days of Adam, to Abraham, to Joseph, all of it, all of Israel's history, all of the world history, up until that moment of time. When Christ died, they died in him because they believed that he would come. Christ died for their sins, and they died in Christ to sin. But it also means that everyone after Calvary, from that moment all the way until this moment, everyone after Calvary, who has believed and would believe and will believe, also united with Christ in that moment of time, died with him. Because while the cross happened in a moment of history, it also happened outside of history, and outside of time. And I realize this is deep waters, and, and maybe this is just it's too much for you. Bear with me. Because what this is really getting at is that at the moment that Christ took his last breath on the cross. Every single follower of Christ, whether they came before Christ or after him, everyone who believes in Christ died in him, in that moment, we died to sin, when Christ died for sin. Come, come back with me to this idea of sin as a, as a master or an authority. You see, the only way, if sin is the master of, of humanity, and it's the master and authority over every single person who have ever lived, the only way to get out from under that authority <coughs> is through death. There's no other way out. You have to die. You cannot be freed from it apart from death. And so how does this happen? Well, there's two ways. You can wait until you physically take your last breath and then you die and sin is no longer your vector, but your death. Or, you can be united with Christ in His death and so through His death you are then free from the power of sin because you, united with him, died with him. He died for your sins. You died to your sins in the very same moment. And this is how we have died to sin. It's gone. It is because Christ died and us being united in Christ, we too have died to sin. That was accomplished in history. It's done Second is then it is applied by faith. It's accomplished in history. It's accomplished in that specific moment, but then it is applied individually by faith. You see, while we have died to sin in that moment, it does not come to fruition. It is not made real until we believe. It is through faith that we are saved. Plain as simple as it can be. Nothing else. But faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, that is salvation. You are saved by faith. And when we place faith in Christ, we come to a point in our lives and we say, I believe what God has said. I believe that Jesus has died for me and that I have died in him. I believe this. In that moment, when that happens, the death of Christ that took place 2,000 years ago, or longer, has been applied to It's already happened. Christ doesn't die again every time someone else believes. It's happened. But when faith comes in, I I say applied and not not another word. Because Christ doesn't die again every time, because all believers, past, present, and future, are are united with Christ on the cross. When, When we say that we believe what Christ has done, his death, our death in him is applied made real, and it's applied through faith. The moment that you believe, the death of Christ is applied to you. And in that moment, your death to sin in Christ at Calvary becomes real. So accomplished in history, applied by faith, signified through baptism. Accomplished in history, applied by faith, signified through baptism. You'll notice that Paul uses this word baptism to help him explain this image. And and I realize that in a lot of ways, I'm in the minority here in, in the church on this understanding of baptism. And that's okay. If you don't agree with what I'm about to say about baptism, just do this for me. At least do this. Search the scriptures this week for this understanding of baptism. And tell me what you find. Because I am not a, a Baptist because I was raised a Baptist and, and believed that baptism is the only way for believers and that's it. I am a, a, I am a believer's baptism guy because I believe that's what the scripture teaches, clearest. Let me just point out a few things from, from these verses. First, do you notice the way that Paul poses the question in verse 2? In verse or sorry, verse 3. Do you not know, is what he says. He is assuming that this Roman church, which, again, to remind you, he's never been to, but he is assuming that this church, that they already know this about baptism. Do you not know this? You, you, you know this, don't you, Paul, Paul's writing? You already know what baptism is really about. And that it signifies the historical death and resurrection of Christ being applied to us through faith. And many will point to Paul here and say, well, why didn't he just elaborate more on baptism here? Why didn't he just give us his full baptism spiel And, and so that we can all be on the same page and not have these divides in our churches over baptism? But more likely, I, I think that Paul, Paul doesn't give us his full spiel on baptism because he's assuming the Roman church already knows it. He knows, he's assuming they already know what baptism is about second thing to show you here he's also assuming that they've all been baptized he says all of us who have been baptized for Paul and for us while baptism does not save you or make your salvation more or less secure baptism is important and it is a necessary act of obedience to scripture to Paul's ears an unbaptized Christian would have been unheard of because when you placed faith in Christ, you were baptized. Because baptism signifies that faith being applied. Third, notice, notice how, how he speaks of baptism. And he speaks of baptism as being baptized into the death of Christ. And this is where I, I think that no other practical way of baptism other than immersion, other than getting in the water and going all the way underwater... You, you miss the imagery of, of what Paul is getting at by sprinkling. Because how does he speak of it? He speaks of it as death, of burial. and Somehow sprinkle and burial just aren't connected like immersion. Is. I mean, you can imagine. Imagine someone being baptized by immersion. They place faith in Christ, they're a believer. They put them in the tank, the tub, the truck, whatever it is. The pastor places a hand on them to help them in the water and and, and baptizes them. And when they are baptized, they are placed all the way under the water, buried. And then they are in in death. They are, As Paul puts it, they are baptized into the death of Christ. And as they are buried under the water, like Christ was buried, they are then brought back up out of the water, resurrected to new life, raised to walk in newness of life. Why is that baptism is what it is. It is a baptism into the death of Christ. And no, no one, no one dies in a baptism. A baptism signifies what's happened, what's been applied through faith, and what's been accomplished in history. See, this, track, track with me on this. When Christ died on the cross, you who believed also died. He died for your sin. You died to your sin. Accomplished in history. This death has been applied to your life today through faith in Christ. When you believe, this is applied to you by faith. And then after the reality of this death has taken hold of you, through this public act of obedience to God's word, you are baptized in a way that signifies, that visibly depicts this reality. You are buried in the water just as Christ was buried in the crown. Because just as Christ, we don't bury things that are still alive. We bury the dead. Christ is buried because he died. When we are buried under the water we are signifying and saying, we are declaring, I too have died. I have died for my sin that no longer has power over me. We are buried in the water just as Christ was buried in the we come up out of the water, just as Christ came up out of the grave. We now live a new life, just as Christ lived a new, resurrected life. Signified through baptism. Accomplished in history, applied by faith, signified through baptism. This is what it means to be dead to sin. Now, you're probably sitting here wondering, if you haven't asked it already, I'll go ahead and ask it for you. Why am I spending an entire week trying to to get you to understand the idea of being dead to sin? So, and really, as Paul puts it at the end of verse 4, so that you will walk in newness of life. This is why. This is why. Why is it important? Why does it matter that you, Christian, are dead to sin? Because you've been commanded, you've been exhorted, you've been called to walk differently walk in newness of life I I, I can't I can't lie to you, I'm not going to put a a, a shiny shiny coat of paint on it sin is a problem in the church in this church, in the American church in the worldwide church, sin is a problem I'm not saying we are called as Christians that, that we should be perfect that we should be without sin, that's not it that's not reality but the ways in which Christians deal with sin is different from the ways in which the world deals with sin. The world covers it up. Or, or worse, the world ignores it. It's not a problem. It's not a big deal. And I, I think that many of us as Christians do the exact same thing that non-Christians do when it comes to our sins. We live in it, we embrace it, we love it, we protect it, and then we deny it, or at worst day, it's okay. Because God's going to forgive me because that's his job. We, it is a a problem, a a big, big problem that we need to address as Christians, as individual believers. If you are willing to stand and say that you are a Christian, if you are willing to take communion every day on the basis that you are a believer and yet spend your week living in habitual, unrepentant sin, it's a problem. I'm not talking about slip-ups and whoopsie-daisies here. I- I'm talking about as Christians who we-, we live and embrace sin for such long periods of time in our lives that we come to convince ourselves and work to convince everyone else that it's not as bad as you can do Then we justify it while we're doing it. And I'll be honest here, this is is not the sermon that you think it is. I'm not going to stand here and tell you this is how you defeat sin in your life. Because that's frankly not what Paul does here. I'm not about to give you the quick fix solution to your habitual sins. Because in reality, they're habitual because there's no quick fix solution to it. I don't think it should surprise us as a people, that, or I don't think it would surprise any of us to, to think that we as a people, as a society, are a people who want everything right now. I mean, if you don't believe me, just come to my house when the internet just slows down and I try to load an episode of Seinfeld. You will see the frustration boil over in the house. We want everything done right away. This mindset is so prevalent that it has infiltrated our churches and that we are convinced that the problems of our sin have to be fixed today or at the very latest tomorrow. (coughs) I need to be fixed now. I need it gone today. Pastor, I need you to tell me how to beat this sin so that I can be done with it before I go to bed tonight. This passage and this language that Paul uses is so drastically different from self-help pop psychology sermons that you hear down the road. I mean, it's it's not. This is not what Paul's doing. Paul is not giving you ten steps to a happier life here. Paul is not giving you five ways to defeat sin because God doesn't do anything fast and immediate in us. I take that back. God does do fast and immediate actions. There are times in history where God has stepped in and does things immediately. And you know what we call those things? Miracles. But the reality is that what, what makes miracles so special is that they don't happen often. But in fact, if you go through the books of the Bible, you will find less immediate fixes, less overnight solutions, less miracles and more of God working long-term in the lives of his people. But just look at the book of Genesis. One book out of 66. Abraham was a pagan. God told him, I'm going to give you a son. And 25 years later, he did. But you know what happened over the course of those 25 years of waiting? Abraham sinned over and over and over and over and over again. He doubted the promise, he doubted the faith, he doubted that God would do what he said he was going to do. So he takes matters into his own hands on more than one occasion. And God continues to work in Abraham's heart. Jump a couple generations to his grandson Jacob. Jacob who is named the deceiver. Who spends his entire childhood tricking his twin brother out of everything. So how does God work to change Jacob's heart? He sends him his own trickster in the form of Uncle Laban. And Jacob then spends 14 years working because his Uncle Laban tricked him. And he realizes that deceit might not be as fun as it it sounds when you're on the other side of the coin. And this change in Jacob causes him, after 14 plus years of working and being tricked and being lied to, being deceived, being conned like he used to con his brother, leaves Jacob not only to receive a new name from God, Israel, but also to come crawling back on his hands and his knees seeking his brother's forgiveness. That doesn't happen overnight. That takes decades. And that's not even counting. We don't even get to Joseph, who spent his entire life being accused of things that he never did. Also, that after years and years and years and years and years and years of torture and punishment and unjust consequences, at the end of it all, also that Joseph can look at his brothers who started the whole thing and say, hey, it's okay. Because what you intended for good, I now see God worked for evil. What you intended for evil, I now see God worked for good. God is not a God of quick fix solutions. Don't think of your sin as being a quick fix problem. He is not interested in giving you something that you can leave here and then say, my sin is gone. I no longer have to deal with this. But Christian, you and I need to face the reality that sin is going to be a problem for us until we take our last breath on this earth. And because of that, Paul doesn't say, get rid of it, be done with it. But what he says is you need to consider yourself. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You want to know how you beat sin in your life? You think about yourself the way God thinks about you. That's it. You begin viewing the person in the mirror in the same level of understanding and insight as the one who created that person sees them. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's the action here. Paul's not saying. Get up and change your life. He's not giving you ten ways to, to happier marriage. He's saying you need to be reminded every day of who you are. Because who you are determines what you do. So that when temptation pops up, when that sin that has plagued you for years begins to rear its ugly head again, when that rage begins to burn deep within your soul, when your problems get so big that you want to drown it in a bottle or, or engorge yourself at a buffet table. And that little white lie seems too easy to pass up. Paul doesn't tell you to fight it. Paul doesn't say to you, beat it. Paul says, be reminded you're dead to this. It doesn't have power over you anymore. It doesn't control you anymore. You you died to these things. Because Jesus died for these things. And all this was applied to you in faith. Don't you remember your baptism? You were dead to sin. Why are you still living in it? Here's, here's the great thing about this. God is working in you, believer. He is working in you, and he's got a long way to go, but he's got all the time in the world to make it happen. And as Paul reminds us in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion in Christ Jesus. He won't finish. He, he won't stop before he's finished. He will finish what he started. And this walking in newness of life isn't something that happens overnight. It's not something that you're going to wake up tomorrow and be like, I'm a different person than I was yesterday. But walking happens over time. And over that time, you journey, You travel. You walk, you move from one point to another. And there are days that are harder than others. There's going to be days that you feel like you've just walked backwards a mile and a half, rather than forwards three. As long as you keep walking in this newness of life, as long as you keep reminding yourself, I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As long as you keep walking in this newness of life, one day, I promise you, one day you are going to look over your shoulder and you are going to see just how far you've come. And you're going to be amazed. And not because you've done it. Not because you've changed finally, but you're going to see wow, God you you really have allowed me to walk in newness of life. You really have empowered me to do this. Look how far you've believer, the day is coming when the sins that seem so big right now are going to look so small in that And the day is coming when the, the sinful and the shameful burdens that you are carrying this morning in secret will be a distant memory. And I can't stand here and I can't tell you that you will get to that point or when you'll get to that point. I wish I could. I just can't. I just don't know, but I do know this: walking in newness of life has very little to do with what we do, but it has everything to do with who we are in Christ. Who are you, Christian? Do you know? How often do you consider yourself? If not, start today. Continue it tomorrow. Wake up every morning and look at yourself and be reminded. Do what Paul says in verse 11. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's the most important truth about who you are. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. Help us to remember who we are. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Teach us repentance. Teach us what grace costs. Help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, church, we respond to the preaching of God's word every week by taking communion. Uh, Ron is at the back. If you need communion, just raise your hand. Uh, he'll raise it to you. But a quick word as he's doing this. This table, like baptism... Is, is one of two sacraments that Christ himself has ordained for the church to, to take and be a part of. Baptism happens once in the life of the believer. It signifies what has happened in history, what has been applied by faith. It happens once. The communion table happens regularly. Because at this table we are reminded of the truth of what God has done for us. We, we praise our, our Savior, we praise the sacrifice, we are reminded of the cost of our sins. And so because of that, with that in mind, if you, if you have not died to sin, if you have not placed faith in Christ, if what, has happened, if what was accomplished in history has not been applied to your life today, then this, it means nothing. This is a stale cracker and some old grape juice. It doesn't save you. What I would rather you do is actually put this and just leave it in your pew and take Christ instead. And then come back next week and we'll take communion again. We would love to have you join us with it as a brother or a sister. Christian, As you come to this table, be reminded of who you are. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And so we come to the table and we first see what it took to free us from this power of sin. The death of Christ. And united in him by faith, we too have died. How can we who died to sin continue living in it? You are free from it. Do not go on living in it. The body of Christ broken for you. And as each of us walk in newness of life, we are walking towards the same destination. We are walking towards the day when we will share this meal with our Savior. Church, the day is coming when sin will be a memory. It will no longer afflict you. It will no longer seek to control you. It will no longer try to enslave you it will be a distant, distant memory. Until that day comes, we wait and we take this table together, praying together, come
1: quickly, Lord Jesus, to the King.
0: Let's sing uh, one last hymn before we leave this morning. It's hymn 447, To God Be the Glory. Will you say this thing? Sorry, because (laughs) he (laughs) lives. church this afternoon, the, the visitation just to remind you, the visitation for, for Miss Jean is at Gordon Funeral Home from 3 to 5 and the funeral service will be here tomorrow afternoon at 2. Uh, come and support the family. They're, they're grieving, they're hurting, and they're, they're part of our family. So we should support them and, and be here with them. As we end, let us uh, say the Great Commission together. They are printed in the bulletin. Say it aloud with me. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me.